Uh, real quick, I just want to say, if the church let me, my name is Johnny and I'm the campus pastor here. I'll say that first. Uh, if you're visiting with us, there's your context. But as the campus pastor, uh, someone thought that I should be in charge of decorating the church. That was, I should not be. And I was not. And every time I got an email about it, I ignored, I sent to spam, okay? <laughs> if you sent one of those emails, I'm sorry. That's the truth this morning. That's what happened. Uh, it's not my spiritual gift. My wife is uh, in charge of our Christmas decorations in our house. I just put lights on the tree, and that's it. That's my whole contribution. I want to say thank you to Angie Dickin. Uh, she is our adult discipleship coordinator. Uh, her small group put up the huge tree, which apparently is a risk to life and limb, um, but they did it uh, up in the balcony there, which is such a, a beautiful beacon to our neighborhood as, as people drive by. And then she came with her family uh, and decorated, uh, put these trees on the platform, put the garland around the edges, point the, put the poinsettias, poinsettias, I never know. See, I, can't, I don't even know what the flowers are called, but she did this with her family, and I'm just so grateful for her. Um, thank you, Angie. You probably hate that I did that. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm not sorry. Um, the first house, I'm going to turn on my clock. Usually I do that. If I don't, we're all in trouble, guys, so forgive me. The first house that my wife and I ever bought together was a little uh, white house, a little white one-and-a-half-story house in Beaverdale. Uh, we were like 21 and 22 years old when we bought it. We were not fancy enough for a Beaverdale brick, but we were fancy enough for a little, you know, uh, white house in Beaverdale. And we loved that little house. And when we first uh, were looking at it, when we were, you know, looking around at houses that we could afford in our very small price range, uh, we were seeing all sorts of houses. And this one really stood out to us because the, the previous owners, when they had uh, left and decided to sell it, they had updated some things. Uh, they had painted some of the interior rooms, and they had uh, put in some crown molding in the living room that looked really, really nice. And some of the house was very updated and very nice. The floors were nice. It was nice. But then other parts of the house were, were uh, straight out of the 50s, man. Uh, the, the oven in this house was, bi- was bigger than me. If I laid down here, it was huge. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these ovens. I had never seen one of these ovens before. It was like six feet long, and it was, uh, you know, cast iron and gigantic. There was wallpaper in all the rooms, and not like the cool hipster wallpaper that people are doing now, like, you know, crazy 60s and 70s wallpaper. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of, a, kind of a thing. So half was done and half wasn't done. So we decided what we're going to do is we're going to buy this house, and then the day that we uh, take ownership, we're going to go in with a whole bunch of our friends and fix as much stuff as we can in two days, right, Uh, and then move in. We didn't have any kids, and our friends didn't have any kids either, so we could do that kind of stuff. It was amazing. So we went in, and we're tearing down wallpaper, and we're taking out the uh, stove, and I had a list of the things that were most important to get done. This was the most important things in our miniature remodel that we were going to get done, and I had a friend named Darren. And Darren had remodeled his home. And he said to me, Johnny, the list is good. You, you need those things. But let me tell you, the most important thing that you can do in your house is change light fixtures. He says, the most important thing that you can do in your house is get good lighting. He said, no matter how beautiful a house is, if it's dimly lit, if you can't see, then you won't be able to enjoy it. We did. We changed a lot of light fixtures in that house, and we had uh, huge energy costs because of it, but we could see it. We could see our beautiful house. It was lovely. Uh, today we are entering the season of Advent, and our series for these next four weeks is called Light. Light. 
And as you heard from our readers, we are going to be walking through the first 18 verses of John 1 together. And this idea of light, this concept of light, uh, the word light shows up over and over and over again through these first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Uh, Light is an important concept in Scripture and especially in this passage. And and Christmas, Advent, is a season of lights. We light the Advent candle. We put lights on our trees. I think this is the only time of year where where we drive around to see other people's lights. I mean, this is a thing that we do. We drive around and look at people's lights. This is a season of light. It's a celebration of light. And as we gather together for these next few weeks, my hope is that we will find ourselves in awe of the true light, the ultimate light, the light of all mankind, the light that has been given to all people. But before we do, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to have to back up. We're not there yet. Because this morning, we're going to start where John starts. We're going to start where the Gospel of John starts, uh, which is different than where the other Gospels start. John decides that he's not going to follow uh, Matthew and Luke and start with the birth of Jesus, and he's not going to follow Mark and start with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John is actually going to go someplace else. John goes all the way back to the start of the universe. So we've heard it once. We're going to hear it again. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The first words, the very first words here in the Gospel of John are supposed to make us remember some other famous first words of Scripture. The first words that John starts with are an echo. They're an echo of the very first words that if you were to pick up your Bible and start reading that you would find today, in the beginning. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Instead of starting, like I said, where Matthew and Luke start with the birth, instead of starting where Mark starts with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John says to really understand Jesus, to really understand Advent, to really understand what happened when Jesus came into the world, we need to start further back. We need to start at the beginning, back at the beginning of everything, back at the beginning of time itself. That's quite the way to kick off a book. I mean, if you're going to really, like, you're trying to shoot for the moon, and you're John, and you're going to write this book, this is how you would do it. You are starting with this huge cosmic thing. Right from these opening lines, John wants to set the stage for the fact that his gospel is not just a biography of a man named Jesus, but this book is a cosmic story, a story about the underlying truths of the universe, of the hidden realities that undergird the things that we can see, touch, and comprehend. He's talking about the hidden things, the things that were before there were things. And and there aren't really words to put around this. And I felt silly kind of when I wrote this because I'm talking about a time before time. We're talking about the beginning Before the beginning, this is where John starts his story. It's a cosmic story. John is setting out to do something that by his own admission, it's impossible to do. 
John is trying to write a story and tell us a story about the significance of Jesus, not not just for this moment in Jerusalem or Israel or even this moment in time or even this moment that we're appreciating together in time, but John is trying to write about the significance of Jesus for everything forever, and he knows that he can't do it. At the end of his book, John says this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have rooms for the books that would be written. That's how John ends. After endeavoring to write these things down, he says, there's more. There's so much more, in fact, that we could fill the whole world with books and we wouldn't have scratched the surface of the things that Jesus did. The story of Jesus is a story that begins at the beginning of all things. The story of Jesus is beyond the 33 years Jesus walked on the earth. It's beyond the manger scene. It's beyond the cross. The story of Jesus is the story of all things. And so, John starts in the beginning. In the beginning. And at the beginning, it was perfect. John keeps it very simple for us here. He tells us that in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. At the very beginning, there was just God. God as God exists in three persons, what we call the Trinity. And I'm not trying to get into a theology lesson, but this is the picture that John begins to paint. He's talking about the Word, the incarnate Word who will be known as Jesus. He's talking about God, the Father, and the unspoken third person here is the Holy Spirit. This is what John is referring to. In the beginning, there was just God. And God existed in perfectness with God. It was perfect. The word is Jesus, but before he ever got that name. And for two verses, John lingers on this reality that the word was there with God in the beginning and that the word was God in the beginning. And John is saying to us, this was perfect. God existing within God's self. (laughs) It's perfect. Last uh, fall, I took a walk with my son, Asher. Asher's five. Um, and we took a walk. Uh, there's trails kind of uh, in Urbandale that kind of go by these little creeks and through these little wooded areas. It's actually really uh, shockingly beautiful. You don't expect to find like a nature trail in the middle of your suburb, but there they are. And uh, we took a great little walk. We were picking up uh, walnuts, and we were talking about the animals that live down in the creek. And I'm not always the most patient dad. I know that's very surprising to hear, but it's true. Uh, sometimes, you know, I can get short with my kids or I can get frustrated that they're not, you know, quite where I want them to be or whatever. And Asher is not always the most agreeable child. He's lovely and I love him, but he has uh, his mother's will. No, uh, he, has, uh, he has my will too, okay? I don't want to say that. He has our will. He, is, uh, he can be stubborn. He's not always the most agreeable child. But this day, this day, this walk was perfect. And we walked for two hours. Sometimes I carried him on my shoulders. Sometimes he walked next to me. We laughed. We talked. We threw walnuts in the creek. It's not, it's not a big memory. Nothing amazing happened. You know, we didn't come across a cougar or something like that in the path. But it's this, it's this memory that remains with me because it was so perfect. It was just this perfect moment. It was beautiful. It's so simple, but it's something that I will never forget. And we all have these moments in our life. You've had these moments. Maybe, maybe you caught a little nap on a beach somewhere. That's a perfect moment if you didn't get a sunburn. 
Uh, maybe you got a nap. A long conversation with an old friend. Those can be perfect moments. A special time with a child or a sibling or a parent. One of those moments that when you're in it, you feel like if this, if this lasted forever, that would be okay. If this is it, if this is like all that I ever had again, this would be good. This would be perfect. We've all had those moments. You feel the love and the joy of that, of that place and you just want to camp out there forever. God existed in a moment more perfect than our most perfect moments. Before time, before creation, in the midst of the infinite, God existed within God's self. With no need of anything else. It was perfect. That's what John is describing, the internal relationship of God. John is trying to put language to what cannot be described by language. God, somehow, three in one, all at once, living in an infinite, perfect moment. And that's a big idea. In fact, it's an idea that if I sit in too long, I I start to get a little squirmy and uncomfortable because I can't possibly imagine what it is to sit in an infinite moment of perfection. That's a big idea, one that's way too big for my brain, but it's at least an idea that we need to try to think. We have to try to think this idea. We have to try to think about it because it makes what happens next unspeakably incredible and beautiful. In the midst of a perfect, infinite moment, God created. In the middle of of, of the most perfect possible imaginable situation where God exists in a loving relationship with God's self, something that we can't even really describe or imagine. In the middle of that, God created. Not because God was bored. Not because somehow that would make the perfect more perfect. Not because God wanted to prove something to someone or or to himself. That was not the reason that God created. The reason that God created was an overflow of love. Creation, planets and trees and galaxies and animals, the farthest reaches of space to the smallest atoms and molecules and quarks. Quarks are a thing, you guys. All the way down to quarks. All of it was created by and through the Word of God and all because of love. The creative energy was an outpouring of the love of God. And we know that it was an outpouring of love because the Word revealed Himself to us. John says, In Him was life and that life was the light of all humankind. We aren't just fish in a fishbowl, swimming aimlessly around for the entertainment of some cosmic pet owner. God has revealed himself to us. The word of God has come to us. And in the word there is life, and that life is the light of all mankind. If God didn't love, if creation wasn't an act of love, then God wouldn't have revealed himself. God wouldn't have showed himself. We could have been God's entertainment, God's plaything, but instead God revealed himself. The world isn't just a beautiful house stuck in shadows, but it has a light where we need it. Life, light, and love. This is the story of creation, the story of Jesus, the story of Advent. 
So during Advent, we celebrate the reality that God loved the world so much that he sent his son, the word, the light. And often when we think about this, when I think about this, when we talk about this, when I talk about this, often when we think and talk about this, we think about it as an event uh, that was somehow out of character for God. That it came out of nowhere. Like suddenly God was going this way and then God changed his mind and started to go this way. Like, like somehow God had, did like a 180 and was going a different direction. We think about this as, as somehow like this unique new moment. We think because the incarnation had never happened before, and it hadn't, that it was somehow a new idea for God. But I believe what John is telling us here is that this is a thing that God does. This is who God is, and this is what God does. When God could have enjoyed a perfect eternity perfectly with himself, God was compelled by love to create us to share it with. When he could have treated the world like a cosmic terrarium and left us to our own devices, he was compelled by love to reveal himself to us and offer us the light that cannot be quenched by the darkness. When he could have shined the light but still remained impersonal, when he could have given us the light but still stayed away and not interacted with us, when that was an option that he had, God still came and made relationships with people like Abraham and Moses and Deborah and David. God came and had conversations. God moved in the lives of people. When God could have stayed detached, God became relational. He was compelled by love to build relationships. The birth of Jesus was the crescendo of a peace that God had been orchestrating since the beginning of time itself. It was the exclamation point on the story of creation. The exclamation point. In the revelation of creation, God begins orchestrating this peace that will go throughout history and finds its exclamation point, its crescendo, its fulfillment in the story of Advent. This is who God is and what God does. God has nothing to gain and nothing to prove and no one to answer to but himself, and yet he continues to move, to love, to give light and life, to light up the darkness. Because God's vision of perfect isn't staying within himself. It's moving toward us. God's vision of perfect is not staying within himself, but it is moving toward us. I don't know about you this morning, but I need God's help to think like that. When I think about the perfect Christmas, the perfect Christmas, I think about my house. My wife has decorated it. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, my kids are on matching pajamas and very well behaved. Um, everything is put together. It's quiet. All is calm, right? This is it. This is, there's a, a Yule log in the fire, right? It's very Burl Ives, right? Like, this is it, though, right? Like, I, this is what I'm imagining when I'm imagining my perfect Christmas. And you know who's not there? Any strangers. There are no strangers in my perfect Christmas. None. They are not there. They're not invited. I'm not proud to admit it, but that's the truth. When I think about perfect, I think about insular I think about me and mine. I think about keeping things close and tight. Perfect means those moments where it's just me and Asher enjoying our time together. That's perfect. 
When God thought about his perfect Christmas, he thought about no house, a manger, probably some animals sitting around. Not, literally nothing about uh, God's uh, uh, perfect Christmas was calm. Uh, nothing was put together. And a whole bunch of dirty shepherds were the first people that God invited to the party. This is God's perfect idea of Christmas. Dirty shepherds, animals, a manger, no room at the end. There's nothing insular about God's perfect. When God does perfect, God does love bursting out. It's not about insular. It's about outward. God's perfect always reaches out. How often do we stay insular instead of reaching out? How often do we allow ourselves to stay within ourselves, within our houses, within our communities, within our small groups, within our church? How often do we allow ourselves to stay as insular as possible instead of reaching out? We are glad to have the light. We celebrate having the light, but are we willing to share it with others? When was the last time you had a conversation with a stranger? The last time you had someone over for dinner? The last time you invited someone to church. And this isn't a guilt trip, or if it is, it starts with me because I have to answer all these questions too. I, I just told you my version of perfect, so I'm on, you know, I'm on full display in my hypocrisy here. But this is the question. This is really the question. When was the last time that we reached out? When was the last time that we recognized the light of Jesus and, and like Jesus went outward instead of inward? How are we allowing our pursuits of perfect to prevent us from living out what God has showed us his version of perfect is? I am am really proud to stand here and say that as a church, we are committed to letting our version of perfect be about moving out. So, (coughs) excuse me. So this afternoon, hundreds of strangers will come through the Meredith Drive campus and, it, and it'll be like Bethlehem. We, we've, we have the candles and everything. And uh, we, have, we have all these people who are coming through who are going to, to be exposed to the light of Jesus. That's because Pastor Bep is committed to reaching out. Pastor Bep's version of perfect is to be reaching out, to be finding more people to spread the light to. As Sarah talked about this morning, and as you saw maybe last week if you were here, our alternative Christmas giving this year, which is kind of a church tradition that we always do an alternative Christmas giving uh, kind of campaign, is about moving out. We're moving out into Hoover High School and Urbandale Middle School and Horizon Elementary School, and we're moving toward and reaching out to people who maybe are less fortunate, who are at risk. We're providing coats and other essentials to families who need them. It's reaching out, the light and love of Jesus. Corporately, we as a church are responding to God's version of perfect by reaching out and moving toward those around us. But the question that I want us to ask today is individually, how are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? Are we intentionally moving toward those around us? those who are different than us, those who maybe seem scary to us? Are we moving out toward people that we don't understand, toward the strangers, toward the people uh, around us who need the light of Jesus? Are we doing that? Or are we pursuing our version of perfect and staying insular, defining perfect by how little the outside world intersects 
with ours instead of how much. That is not the way God defined perfect. In the beginning, it was perfect with God. And then God burst out. In the creative, loving energy of creation, God made everything. God made time out of love for us. As we move through this Advent season, I pray that we would have God's view of perfect, that his love and light would compel us to move beyond ourselves to those in need of his love and light all around us. And as we move through the book of John, we're going to see the light continue to progress. John's cosmic story of Jesus turning the entire cosmos upside down, right, is starting to play out in John chapter 1. And that leaves me with one question for us this week, and it's a very simple, simple question. How can we reflect God's vision of perfect and reach out to someone else this week? Let's pray. God, I think in my best, most brilliant moment, I couldn't even understand one-tenth of one percent of what it means that in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. God, I, I can't even imagine the perfection of that infinite moment where you existed and you were all that existed and you were all in all. It's, a, it's an idea that is uh, too big for us to imagine and yet, God, I think we should try to imagine because it makes your creative act almost unfathomable. God, that you loved us so much that you created us. And then you loved us so much that you revealed yourself to us. And then you loved us so much that you built personal relationships with us. And then, God, you loved us so much that you condescended, that you came down yourself to understand what it was like to be us. You, with all the knowledge in the universe, with everything at your disposal, with no need of anything or anyone, you, out of love, did that. God, this this Advent season, as we wait to celebrate that moment, I pray that you would fill us up with your love that compels us toward the same things that compelled you to, toward relationships, toward connection outside of our insular selves and toward your vision of perfect, which is always outward. God, we need you for that to be possible. Fill us with your love, God. Thank you for this time that we can gather together this morning. I pray all this in your name. Amen.